and welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. It's a science podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Ben McAllister. And I'm your other host, Dr. Taryn Lovenstein. I'm a physicist. And I'm a marine biologist. And we're here to bring you the aforementioned science podcast. Uh, So, this isn't like a science podcast where we just talk about science facts and explain stuff to you. We look at the intersections of the science with history, politics, and culture, and use science as a lens to explore those other things. Now, this is our first ever episode, so thank you for tuning in with us. Woo! Yeah, I mean, you're you're basically part of history now. Wow, yeah, I didn't think of that. Maybe when someone talks about history through the lens of science and they talk about this podcast, they'll talk about you, dear listener. Oh, that'd be so nice. Yeah, as a a part of it. Uh, So the format for the show, I guess we should clue you in on that. Uh, Between the two of us, we have very different fields, but we're both chatterboxes as much as we are scientists, if not more, you might say. So one of us researches a topic, an explainer, if you will, uh, some kind of science or STEM field thing that we think is interesting to learn more about. And then we explain it to the other one, and the other one just kind of is there to bring you along for the ride, kind of like your guide on this journey of discovery. I like that. Uh, great. Okay, uh, what else do we do on the show, Taryn? Um, we also have a guest speaker that will come along and talk about something completely different in the middle of the episode, just to kind of keep things light, keep it fresh. And we have a really exciting guest for our first episode. Here's a sting of her now. And so I think it kind of realized, oh, it's not moving, and it feels like it, it tastes weird. Mm-hmm. This is not food, and it just let me go. Yeah, so we're going to endeavor to have those guests present throughout uh, each episode of the show, but uh, we'll worry about the future later. For right now, how about we get into it? That sounds great, Ben. Today, Taryn has been researching the topic that we're going to break down for you over the next mm, 40, 50 minutes or so. Now, what is the topic that we're going to learn about today, Taryn? Ben, we're learning about bees. Fantastic. Taryn's been doing the research about bees, and I've been doing exactly no research about bees. <laughs> so I'm going to be here with you, the listener, on a journey, learning about it from my good friend, Dr. Taryn Lovenstein. All right. So before we get started, Ben, mm-hmm. I need to know, what is your opinion on bees? How do you feel? <laughs> How do you feel about bees? <laughs> How do I feel about bees? I feel like bees are an inherently kind of funny creature. Like there's just something that's always entertaining about like bees being the punchline to something. <laughs> um, that being said, I don't like that they sting, but I do like that they do honey. And I'm given to understand, knowing not much about bees, that they're pretty fucking important for like the way we do the whole planet thing. Yeah, that was a pretty nuanced take on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Terrence for the hot takes, you nuance, you come to Big B. That's Ben McCallus. Yeah, that's why. That's my nickname. There you go. Big, Big B. B. He's buzz, already buzz. on Team B. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate that nuance take because I think bees can get a really bad rap. And I'm hoping that over the course of the next hour or so, we can change some people's minds who might not already be members of the Big B fan club. They might not already be They might not be the B club. The biggest B members. Okay, cool. I guess get ready for heaps more of that. We'll try not to sting you. Oh, boy. With our... I should have saved that one. I had nothing. <laughs> that was nothing. That was just the word sting. I'm sorry. There's too many... Bee puns will abound. Hopefully this episode gets our audience a buzzing. Oh boy. Okay, let's let's go. So yeah, so... Tell me about bees, Taryn. Bees get a bad rap sometimes. Mm -hmm. And 
That's pretty much because they have a crappy family. I thought bees made good wraps, like when people make beeswax wraps that you Ooh, can use instead of... Ooh, that's true, and it's a fun little DIY project for the weekend. <laughs> what DIY is it? A little DIY for you. I ya. usually buy mine at the farmer's market, you see. Oh, I see. You go on a Sunday and you you're more of a, get your fresh vegetables and your beeswax You're more wraps. of a homemade beeswax wraps kind of gal, are you? <laughs> Would you say you mind your own beeswax? Ooh. I would say that I do. Okay, sorry. I derailed you immediately. You <laughs> so, were like, here's some science, and you got fucking one <laughs> sentence in, and then there it I was. It wasn't even science yet. This yeah. is just public okay. opinion. This is bee history. So, as I was saying, <laughs> bees can get a bad rap because they have a crappy family. So, bees are like the Lisa Simpsons in a family of Homers and Barts. Do you know what I mean? They're just, they get a bad rap because they're surrounded by bad people. (laughs) And those bad people. Bad people or bad bee Those bad people are known as wasps. Oh. Wasps are the worst. And they're very closely related to bees. So bees are actually descended from or evolved from wasps. So that's how they end up having many similar characteristics. And you would be forgiven for mistaking one for the other. Wait, Taryn. If bees evolved from wasps, Taryn, why are there still wasps? Well, as it turns out, they can play different roles in how they affect the environment. And specifically, that's how wasps are so crappy and bees are so amazing. So wasps are predators. They sting and they kill other insects to meet their nutritional needs. Whereas bees are more like vegetarian wasps that are all about being good for the planet. Wait, do wasps eat other insects? Is that a thing? Yeah, they're predatory. It's bad. And they're like the worst kind of predators, right? So normally in the animal kingdom, you know, a lion catches a gazelle and then it eats it immediately. You know, it kills it and then it eats it in a very straightforward process. (laughs) I'll take you in for it. You're the biologist. But wasps, they don't do that simple situation of eat, catch, kill. No. What they do in some species... They will attack and sting their prey to paralyze it, but they don't eat it right away. Instead, they lay their eggs onto the paralyzed prey, <gasps> and then they wait for their babies to hatch, and then the babies feed upon the paralyzed body oh, of the prey. Oh, that's fucked up. I, that, that's I do a not mafia like that. level shit. <laughs> yeah, that they is... just, it, they're bad guys. That's what I've been trying to tell that you. That is beyond okay. Wasps, yeah, you get out of here. Yeah, I'm done with wasps you. get out of here. And I don't so want it. I think that's why bees tend to get a bad rap because when you see this buzzing thing coming at you, mm-hmm. it's black and yellow. You're like, I don't know if that's a bee or a wasp. Okay. Therefore, I don't like it. And okay. you could end up killing something that's actually, in fact, not that bad. So, talk me through that. Bees are not that bad? What do you mean? Because they do sting, and it do ouch. I don't like it very much. <laughs> they do do the ouch ouch, but <laughs> okay. as we're going to learn in the second half of today's episode, oh. they're super good for the environment. Okay. So, that's a number one reason to be on Team B. Okay. Reason two is they're not aggressive. They're just defensive. So, they're only going to sting you if they feel like they're being threatened, whereas wasps are just dicks, and they just go around stinging people, and they can also sting you multiple times, whereas most... Bees will end up dying if they sting a human because their stinger gets caught in your skin. Okay, yeah. Are we going to talk about that? Is that part of this or is now our opportunity to talk about that? About what? The bees dying if they sting you thing. So it's actually a myth that bees will always die after they sting. Uh Uh-huh. Because they can sting other insects. Yeah, right. But they're not supposed to be stinging big things like mammals that have thick skin. Right. And so if they sting a human, their stinger gets caught and... When they try to fly away, it kind of rips out their insides and then they die. Yeah, I mean, that just seems like a massive fucking design flaw for bees. Well, they're not supposed to be 
going after humans and big mammals. But when you say not supposed to, what do you mean by that? Oh boy, I mean that's a real cosmic question, Ben. Yeah. But in terms of their little bee lives, uh-huh. um, you know, they're more encountering other rival insects meant rather to be than humans. Minding their own beeswax. Oh, couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, good. So that's kind of the big difference between bees and wasps. Um, but of course, these are all generalizations, I would like to say. Mm-hmm. There are over 16,000 species of bees, so not everything's going to apply to all of them. Some of them can be a little waspier than the others. But that's oh. some general rules for you. So now that we've covered what a bee is and what a bee isn't, I want to talk about the social structure. <laughs> Sorry, how did you bees. not call that section to be or not to be? Oh, no! <laughs> you really <laughs> fucked that one up. Missed opportunity! That was a, fucking, that was a sitter. Oh, that was an absolute fucking sitter. Can we sitter. go back? <laughs> yeah, we'll just edit it. So just say that now and I'll drop it in at the top. <laughs> To be or not to be, Ben. Wow, wow Taryn, what an incredible title for a section. I'm I'm, very I'm a very smart cookie. <laughs> okay, great. So, okay, so now that we've covered what a bee is and what a bee isn't, I want to talk about the social structure of bees, specifically honeybees. And I'd like to note that from here on in, unless I say otherwise, we're talking about honeybees. Because again, 16,000 species... One hour. We don't have time to cover it all. So what you're saying is some of the things that you're saying might be considered bee slander against other types of bees. Indeed. Okay. We don't want to slander any bees. No. Okay, so to This clarify. is a bee-friendly show. Okay, so we're pro-bee. We're pro-bee. <laughs> we're pro bee. Okay, I just we're wanted to make pro-bee. sure what side of the bee or not bee continuum we're working with. Here. Very highly bee. Okay, we're pro-bee. Bee plus, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So... In the social structure of honeybees, there are three kinds of adults. There's queens, workers, and drones. Now, have you ever heard of a queen bee before? I have. Tell I know me that what one you know about song. Her. Something like that. One that's that you that's call spot me on. Queen bee. We're going to have to pay for the license if I say anymore. (laughs) Don't do that. Yeah. No, I know a queen bee is the the one. It's also in Mean Girls, I think. They talk about, like, the concept of a queen bee within, like, human social interactions. My understanding is that queen bee is just the top shit who tells everyone what to do. So that's actually... Um, partly true. She is the shit, and there's only one of her, but she doesn't actually control what people do. Okay. She's just sort of... What she's in charge of is... People. People. She's in charge of the people. And what she does is she produces the babies. That's her only job. All she does is make babies, and she's very good at it. Babies? Babies. Babies is what I was going for there. I was going for bay, like Queen Bay. Oh. The Bay Hive. Mine's better. I don't know. Beyonce is always going to win out for me. Anyway, she can produce a lot of eggs, over a thousand per day, and she lives for up to five years. So she can can make a lot of baby bees in Mm -hmm. her time. So that's the queen. Then you have workers that are female bees that are um, non-reproductive. They're sterile. They can't produce offspring. Uh And they pretty much do everything. They build and clean the hive. They collect pollen and nectar. And then you have the drones, which are the males. And they do pretty much nothing except mate and eat. Sounds like a pretty chill life. (laughs) It sounds like a chill life, Ben, but I'm going to tell you now. (laughs) It's not all good for the drones, but we'll get there. Okay, wait. So the only ones that can reproduce is the queen. Is the queen, And is the queen like you're born a queen and you're a queen forever? Oh, this is my favorite. It's so interesting. Okay. Okay, So what's cool about bees is that for the female bees, when they are baby bees, when they're little eggs, um, the future worker bees and the future queen bees have identical DNA. So the building blocks of, you know, what will make them a bee, they're exactly the same. 
But obviously they end up being very different in terms of when they become adults because one flies out of the nest and does everything and the other one just makes babies. So how does that happen? Well, how it's dictated is based on the diets that the worker bees feed to the freshly hatched bee larvae. I see. So for the first three days of their lives, future workers and the future queens get the same exact diet. But then after day three, the queens only get this thing called royal jelly. <laughs> which, Do they have to call it something so fucked up? Listen, humans name these things. Royal jelly. Jesus Christ. It's a really nice name for something that's pretty weird. It's a secretion that comes out of the head of worker bees. Okay. And it's essentially like protein powder for so wait, bees. The worker bees make the queen? Yes. It's like they a democracy make the thing. Queen. Yeah, so they produce this jelly and they give it to the queen, and it's this great mixture of protein and sugars and all these great vitamins. And it sets off a series of molecular reactions inside of the larva, including the development of ovaries, which are going to allow her to reproduce. Whoa! Okay, yeah. so it's literally like a queen gets made. How do they choose? How do they, they've got all these, like, oh, 10 million larvae? That's a fantastic question, and scientists are still working to try and really? figure it out. But what is interesting is that... Does it seem that, like there's logic to it? Well, for a long time, people thought it was random. Mm-hmm. Um, but now there may be some slight epigenetic differences so that epigenetic means over genetic so it's not so much the dna is different but the way that it is interpreted so whether certain genes are turned on or off so there Mm -hmm. may be some epigenetic differences but that's still very much out for debate very interesting stuff so yes as you were saying the worker bees they get to decide who becomes a queen and who's not and they're very careful about when they decide they're going to raise a new queen because there's generally only one queen at a time mm-hmm. so you're only going to see a new queen under two conditions either the hive starts to get too big or the queen is not up to scratch and they decide to overthrow her whoa do you ever get like a game of thrones thing where there's like multiple queens and they're fighting for who gets to be on the oh boy then yeah. are you in for a journey <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's better than the last season of Game of Thrones, am I right? But, um, Internet people who didn't like that one? I mean, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I'll take your word. Okay, good. So, in the first case, if the hive starts to get too big, then the bees will do what is called swarming. And in this case, the old queen and about 60% of her bee friends take some supplies and they buzz off to find a new home. Really? Yes. They just fuck called- off and the, over half the, the hive? Yeah. They're wow. just like, bye. Why isn't it half? Why would it be more than half? What's that about? she's old she needs some extra support okay all right fine (laughs) then the second case is essentially a coup it's called superseding and this is when the bees essentially overthrow the existing queen and this could be for a number of reasons she could be getting old she might have some sort of disease or she's not producing enough babies anymore and if this happens then they're gonna replace her with a new queen and like that requires some degree of cunning and reasoning from the bees surely yeah here's how that goes So sometimes the new queen and the old queen can get along and they have a good time and then the old queen eventually dies. But some other times the hive's like, we really don't like the old queen. So when the new queen is hatched, then they do something called balling, which is they cluster around the old queen in a really tight ball. And this raises the temperature around her. (gasps) So she either dies 
from overexposure to heat or she suffocates. That's the worst way to kill... Like, okay, sorry. Imagine that. Like, in this country <laughs> that we live in, both of us, Tara, in Australia, where, like, yes. every three years we have a new prime minister, or less than that even. Imagine if, like, the way that we decided to do that as a society was like, oh, bloody Scott Morrison, let's just all go dogpile him. <laughs> we'll just get on top of Scott Morrison. Until he eventually we'll, until overheats he or dies. <laughs> he, he does die one way or another. Yeah. He's either dying of the heat or we're or suffocating him to death. Yeah. Well. They're not... They're not super into um, democracy. 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 Ooh, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. it. Okay, good. <laughs> so that's just the process of getting a new queen. Okay. Then we get into that battle royale we were okay. talking about earlier. So the thing is, the worker bees—they have to hedge their bets because if they only lay one queen, she might not turn out the best. So what they do is they they set up multiple queens to hatch at the same time. Multiple lines of succession. Exactly. And then whenever a new queen hatches, she does something called piping, which is essentially producing a high-pitched noise, which is always a G-sharp, interestingly. Wait, hang on. Perfect G-sharp? <laughs> a perfect G-sharp? No way. Yeah. A perfect G-sharp? Every time. Like, to within how many hertz? I mean, I, mm, I don't know if they have any, like, sound technicians working on this, but the That's scientists seem pretty convinced. That's fucked up. Is it? Or yes. is it perfect? I mean, but why would it be a, like, why would it be perfect? What's that about? The, the definitions of notes are, like, pretty human-centric. Like, we're like, oh, yeah, that one's an A, that one's a B. Uh, wouldn't it be a. better if it was a B that she did? Wouldn't it? But, you know, I guess that's not the world we live in. Okay, whatever. That's so fucking crazy. Starts, yeah, so she starts doing this piping, which is essentially her way of saying, come at me. I am the new queen, and if you're interested in also being a queen, you gotta come fight me right now, and we're gonna duke it out till the death. Whoa! Yeah. So she starts piping, and this alerts other queens that she's around. And then the queens will fight to the death in a series of battles, until Wait, one queen emerges. When you say a series of battles, is it like a tournament structure? I mean, I don't know if it's that, um... Regimented. <laughs> regimented, but it's <laughs> mostly just whoever's happens to be hatched at the same time. Uh-huh. They're just going to go at it until right. one is left. Fuck yeah. That's yeah. extremely metal. It's very metal. <laughs> and I imagine also very, like, draining. So once one queen mm. reigns supreme, she's like, all right, listen, that was really hard. I don't want to do that again. So she then goes around to all of the other unhatched queens that mm -hmm. are still in their yep. little... Murders them. Yeah, and she murders them. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's ridiculously metal. I also think, like, the best strategy there is to just be the last one hatched because, like, they're all going to be tired fighting each other. And then you're going to come out and be like, hey, what's up? I'm a fresh queen. I'm ready to go. And then you're going to fuck up that tired queen that's been in, that like... That sounds like a great study to do. Yeah. We should do that. Okay. Let's, just, let's raise just some Just delete bees. that part from the episode and then we'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. I know a bee researcher uh, we could ask. Fantastic. Great. So this is just the beginning of a queen's life. She slaughtered all her sisters and now she's like... Great, it's time for the honeymoon. So once she's sexually mature, she's going to go out on what I like to think of as like a little bender to Vegas. Uh huh. She's going to go out and she's going to find an area called a drone congregation area. <laughs> and this is essentially like a floating bee bar. A because fuck pad. It's, yeah, it's just a bunch of dudes hanging out waiting for a queen to come along. <laughs> this is a real thing. Yeah, nice. So the drones are there in the drone bar. And when the queen comes along, she's going to mate with them. Uh-huh. Now... I'm going to warn you right now, this is not good for the males. Okay, really? Now, this is literally his only job. Yeah. He just mates and eats. Yeah. That sounds but fucking chill. It, it sounds chill until we get to the mating part. So, okay. if he is successful at mating, 
Then essentially what happens is, this is happening midair. He oh, mounts the female. Yeah. yeah, they're that's, just flying around when this is, is happening. That's crazy. He mounts the female, and if he successfully mates with her, then he becomes paralyzed, and the force of his ejaculation flips him backwards and also ruptures his endophallus. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> and then, so with his endophallus still inside of the queen... He Wait. is paralyzed and falls to the ground. He loses his dick inside the queen? And then he dies, yeah. Whoa, that's so, that, that's all they do? Yeah. To be fair, if that's like the entire purpose of your existence, it's probably like, you're probably pretty chill about it. Well, it's like, oh, literally all I have to do is I'm going to hang out here with my bros and then the <laughs> queen's going to come along and... And then we're all going to die. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound great, but I also don't think they know what's going to happen. Mm. I feel like they're like, but I'll be different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to rock your world, baby. All those other guys, <laughs> they may have exploded and died, but uh, not me. <laughs> exactly. So oh, this happens about anywhere between 10 and 50 times. The queen mates with all these different males. And Damn. she's like, all right, I'm never going to Vegas again. That was terrible. I can't. I'm done. That's it for my whole life. So she, <laughs> that's it. That's her one chance. And right. then she goes back to the hive and starts laying her eggs again, and the so process wait, starts all over. So both over. the queen and the males have sex once and then die. Well, she gets to do it. I mean, the queen dies a it. lot later. Yeah, I mean, technically, yes. She's like, oh, great. Now yeah. sex time, and then just the rest of my life, and then death. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sounds good. So when she returns to the hive, she starts laying eggs. And what's interesting here is that when she lays her eggs, she can either lay fertilized or unfertilized eggs. So the fertilized eggs, those will have the DNA from the drones. And those will become females, which will later become queens or workers. But she can also lay unfertilized eggs that only contain her DNA. And those are going to become the drones. So this is why she'll never mate with a drone from her hive, because she's genetically related to all of them. And that would be incest. And bees are not down with that. So that's the thing that they're opposed to. Hey, that gives a whole new meaning to the uh, how do you like your eggs question. (laughs) Unfertilized. Yeah, exactly. Um, wait a minute. So bees are okay with like their entire social structure revolves around the idea of having sex once and then dying. But yep. the concept of incest is a big no-go for them. Well, I, we know that the reason that incest is a big no-no is because it can start to cause genetic deformities. And that would not be good for the survival of a hive. Mm-hmm. So whether it's humans or bees, incest is never a good idea. So very much not a Game of Thrones thing then. Because they really don't Again, have a problem Again, you've never watched it. Game of Thrones. Yeah, but surely you've heard about the incest. No. Okay, well, never mind. (laughs) So that is the social structure of bees. Now, let's talk about what they do for the environment, which is pollination. Right, so this is why we should give a shit about the other stuff, right? Yes. So what do you know? Tell me me what you know about pollination. Uh, Pollination. Plant has pollen. It's the stuff, the dust in the plant, plant, and the bee take the pollen and put it in the other plant, and sometimes they make honey. That's exactly and it. Is that all of it? The other yes. thing I know about it is that it makes my eyes very sad. Oh, and no. And give me a runny, a runny time in my nose. Well, I'm sorry about that. Because of the hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> but bees are very good at pollinating. That's exactly okay. right. So what they're doing is they're helping flowering plants to reproduce. Because flowering plants, like humans, need genetic material from two different individuals in order to reproduce. But they're rooted in place, so they can't do it themselves. So they wow. gotta rely on things like the wind or pollinators, <laughs> like bees and birds and other things, to help them get it I love on. The idea of it being the wind, like just being like, <laughs> "What's your mating strategy?" Well, I kind of just hope it blows really good. <laughs> we'll just kind of see what happens. 
Yeah, it's not the best strategy, but it does work for some Surprisingly some effective. Hey, plants? Surprisingly common. <laughs> They're creatures that uh, rely on that kind of technique. Yeah, so bees and flowers have this really cool relationship where it's sort of an example of coevolution, which is a term that describes when two species will reciprocally affect each other's evolution. Mm-hmm. So with bees and flowers specifically, it's a mutualistic relationship, which means it's good for the both of them. So you basically have the flowers that are attracting bees and then rewarding them with food in the form of nectar and pollen. Wait. And then the bees, in turn, are pollinating them and allowing them to reproduce. So how do the bees decide? Like, if they take the pollen out of the plants and they also take nectar, I guess, to eat, they use some of that pollen to make honey, right? Uh, they use nectar to make honey. Oh, really? So the pollen, all they're doing with the pollen is fucking just putting it all over the place. Well... So nectar is sort of like a sweet, sugary little beverage for the bees that Mm -hmm. they can drink and also use to make honey. Whereas pollen is more protein-rich, and they use it to feed to their little baby bees. So they do eat it or use it, but they also, like, move it around? Yeah. How do they decide how much to move around? They're just like, oh, I'm going to go to this plant here, like, ooh, there's nectar. Love it. Yummy. Also, I'm going to put some of that aside to make honey with. Well, it's more like the flowers are kind of tricking them into doing it a little bit. Okay. So what flowers have to attract bees are a couple different skill sets, if you will. They've Mm -hmm. got their scent, which we can all enjoy as humans, but then they've also got colors and patterns. So they sometimes change the color of their petals to sort of lead the bees into the center of the flower where the pollen is. We've all been there. We've, we've all been there. It's like it's like a little bullseye of where the bee should go. And what's cool about those patterns is some of them are actually not visible to the human eye because mm. bees have different eyes than humans. So they can see in ultraviolet light, whereas we cannot. So if you look at some flowers under ultraviolet light, you see patterns that we can't see but are specifically for the bees to say, come get the num-nums, it's <laughs> do, time to eat. Do they say, come in here bees, it's time to snack down? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, great. Verbatim. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's what the plants do. Then what the bees have developed is something called a pollen basket, which is these tiny hairs. I know, it's cute. It's these tiny little hairs around their hind legs that are really excellent at trapping pollen. So it helps them to carry that pollen from flower to flower. And also the buzzing of a bee can help to dislodge the pollen from the flowers. Wow. So it's like a co-evolution thing. Very cool co-evolution. What I want to know is, what's in it for the bees in order for them to develop the pollen basket? Is it literally just like there's more flowers? If they get, like spread the pollen around, like that'll create more flowers and therefore more food sources for them in future. Because presumably, as you say, the bees don't know that they're doing it. It's just getting trapped in their pollen baskets. Mm. Why did Why did that happen? Why did they evolve that trait? Like evolutionarily, like why is that? Why does that make a it bee? It doesn't fitter? help a bee, but they help the flowers. Oh sure, and I'm then not, the flowers help the bees. I'm not saying that the bees shouldn't do it. I'm talking about a survival of the fittest type situation. I here. see. Why would a bee develop a pollen basket? How does it help them? It doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> if you know that one, write to us at tup at curionetwork.com because I'm go. very curious. Well, uh, we're all curious. And and now I think, Ben, it's time to talk about something a little different. So we have a guest speaker that you'll be hearing from oh, in a moment. Oh, I love this. Yes. And it, we're going to hear about a totally different subject to cleanse your bee palate. Mm-hmm. But don't go too far, because we're going to be learning about how bees make honey and how humans are interested in getting that honey Oh, after the break. I can't wait. I'm going to get some honey right now. Let's do it. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
Okay, great. So we're down here in an actual science lab. Along... First one in a science lab. Yeah, I think. this is the first time we've recorded yes. in a lab. Yeah, Very so this you're in you're in uh, rare territory at the moment, and we're down here with our special guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi everyone. I'm Melissa Christina Marquez. I'm a shark scientist based out of Perth, Australia. Now, when you say a shark scientist, do you mean someone who studies sharks or a shark who is a scientist? <laughs> No comment. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. You heard it first here, yeah. folks. Oh, Dang you it. Didn't, you didn't hear it. Yeah, that's right. Dang it. And the audio quality of this medium means that you'll never know, really. <laughs> you might have run into the first talking shark. Or would it indeed be the first talking shark? Who knows? No comment. <laughs> Learning okay. so much about sharks. Yeah, wow. Today. This is a tough interview. Okay. Uh, so, Melissa, what do you research? What do you work on as a shark scientist? So, I do two things with sharks. Um, I look at them themselves, so habitat use, specifically looking at where sharks are and why they're there um, and how they use that particular area that they're in, as well as I look at their conservation as a whole, specifically focusing on us in that equation. So how our perception of these animals sways conservation initiatives and management success, as well as how we've kind of evolved throughout the years of with our relationship with sharks. So we've gone from idolizing them as gods to being terrified of them in many really bad sci-fi movies. Um, mm. So kind of learning about that progress as Are well. Are you talking about Sharknado? Amongst many. <laughs> oh, well, Amongst there's, many. There's Jaws. What are the other movies that are like Sharktopus. Sharktopus is a real movie? Yeah, like Sharktopus. There's, I, I know there's a shark. shark. Yeah, Mega Shark. The Meg? Yep, was that the Meg. that came out recently? Megalodon. Yeah. Also. I would be fun. so rich if I got a dollar for every time someone asked me if the Meg was still alive. Okay. I'm going to guess no. No. <laughs> no, you heard it here first. No. That, that was my next question. Okay. So, uh, the first thing that you mentioned, looking at where sharks are and why they're there, how do you determine where sharks are short of just, like, swimming around? I mean, it's basically kind of just, for us, it's using technology. Uh, so, beta remote underwater video cameras, or BRUVs, and one thing that I'll be also using is drones. So, we've got some areas... I know, I'm so excited, Marie. What a hot yes. topic. I know! It's great! I'm so excited! Um, you get to learn how to pilot one? Yeah! Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we we got, like, um, a splash drone one, so it can actually go in the water. Oh, wow. And I'm really happy about that, because that means it's kind of, like, Melissa-proof. <laughs> because then I don't have to worry about, like, oh, no, I'm going to hit a mangrove. I'll just be like, I'll just splash it in the water, and then I'll go get it. Yeah, I'll be using that. And there's a few areas that we kind of know of where they are, but we don't know why they're there. We have okay. kind of an idea, um, and I'm specifically looking at nurseries. So the very beginning for quite a lot of shark species is being born either near a nursery or in a nursery, and that's like a protected area. Um, specifically, I'll be looking at mangroves, which their roots provide quite a lot of shelter for these smaller sharks and these smaller animals from bigger predators, um, and it allows them to kind of grow without fear of being munched on by anything okay. <laughs> bigger. Um, so become their true sharky self. Aww. Yeah, and maybe one day grow up to be a scientist. Exactly, <laughs> okay. but no comment. So, <laughs> you've had a lot of personal experience with these nurseries, I assume. Yes. I am going to catch you out. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm on your trail. I'm like a hard-boiled detective. <laughs> I'm dragging you down through the ocean 
going to get back to your roots. Okay, uh, so how do you try and determine why a shark would be in a particular place? Well, one of the ways that I'm going to be doing it with these drones and with these brubs is putting it in the areas that we know that they're in and observing their movement throughout mm-hmm. an area. Um, and one of the things that I'm curious about is, say you've got mangrove A and mangrove B. To us, they look exactly alike, but for some reason, the sharks are either going only to mangrove A or only to mangrove B mm. uh, to use as a nursery. And so I'm interested to see if there's some ecological parameters or factors such as salinity, turbidity, um, prey selection, something there that's drawing these sharks to that area instead of the other area that to us looks exactly the same. And so do you take that information and then apply that to the conservation aspect of it? Yeah, in a way. So I'll be looking at where the nurseries are exactly are. Um, and for us, it's going to be in different parts in the Indian Ocean. Um, and once I've got that information, I'll figure out, all right, so this is where a nursery is. Where's the closest human population? Go there and start essentially um, employing socioeconomic surveys to figure out what are the factors that influence our perception of sharks. So is it gender? Is it uh, educational background? Is it our political stance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, culture, religion? And taking that information and then seeing, okay, is there a set thing that seems to be a driving force in how we perceive sharks? That's really cool. That is very cool. And so is the idea then by determining like, what is the driving force behind how people see sharks? We can come up with some kind of campaign to make people feel more positively towards sharks and more invested in their conservation? Yeah, basically it's kind of trying to understand why we have such a strained relationship with sharks. Mm. Um, as kind of like I said earlier, um, I've done research in folklore of sharks before, and back then people used to idolize sharks for the most part as gods um, or at least respected them in a way especially here in Australia and how we've gone from living respectfully with these animals to now demonizing them um, and anytime there is a fatal shark bite people almost in almost pitchforks and everything being yeah. like all right let's go and kill them yeah try and understand how we've gone from one to the other extreme almost in a way yeah um so i'm not asking everyone to love sharks as much as i do <laughs> but i am asking for people to have almost an open mind to understand they're a really important part of a very big ecosystem the ocean uh, which we kind of need to make our planet work um mm. so you don't have to love sharks but live peacefully in them or yeah. with them in a way it's about shark such tolerance a message yeah <laughs> what a message of shark acceptance yeah. <laughs> trying divisive time and but researching in. sharks can be pretty dangerous right yeah now i would be remiss to not ask you about an incident that i read about <laughs> on twitter that has scarred me to this day oh. where you were diving in cuba was it yeah can you can you maybe walk us through that that uh, instance of shark research? Yeah, so I was uh, filming with Shark Week with um, a group over there in Cuba. Uh, mm-hmm. And during one of our filming takes, uh, we knew there was crocodiles around. Uh, and one had actually left the vicinity. We thought it had gone, gone. Um, but it actually came back around when we were finishing our dive. And my dive buddy had just gone up. Uh, and they had crossed in front of me. And I wanted to wait a few extra seconds because it's his fins were going to hit me in the face. And I was like, yeah, no. nobody wants a fin to the face. No, it's annoying. It's an expensive mask, too. And it was like acting up at this time, too. Mm-hmm. Like the microphone wasn't working and whatnot. And so it was during that point that I felt like this really hard pressure on my leg. And I started getting dragged backwards. <sighs> <laughs> this is my worst nightmare, Melissa. You don't even know. It's... It wasn't a nightmare I knew to have. I never, like, considered it Ugh. and whatnot. Um, and thankfully, I haven't had any nightmares since then, like, knock on wood. <laughs> wow. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it's kind of given me a really interesting so wait, you got, standpoint. Just to clarify, yeah. <laughs> bit by a shark. No, no, bit by a crocodile. Oh, yes, a of course. A crocodile. Yeah, yes. which is really funny since I work with sharks and everyone's like, oh, yeah. do you get bit by sharks? I'm like, no, the only thing I've ever gotten bit by was a big That's lizard. almost sounds worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I understand that, like, they're extremely deadly. How does one escape from being bit by a crocodile? Um, not being in the water, maybe? First of all, no, is I mean, one I mean, great how way. how did you escape? Oh, how did I escape? Um, well, for me, I played dead in a way. Now, usually, like, a lot of... Uh, researchers and experts in for crocodiles and whatnot say fight back but we knew this crocodile he had kind of been like hanging around for a while mm-hmm. um so i knew he wasn't super aggressive and we knew that it had been fed, like he had fed recently so okay. i knew he wasn't super hungry and they've got a really powerful jaw force and so yeah. i was like right they the fact yeah, exactly and so the fact that i could still think properly that i wasn't like i was in pain but not in a lot of pain i was okay. like right it's an exploratory bite which sharks do the same exact thing yeah. it's a quick kind of bite to figure out if you're something edible, if you're food. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with these exploratory bites is their teeth are designed to go through bone, through blubber, through muscle, through shells sometimes. Uh Our skin, like, we're not made for that. And so for us, it could be quite fatal from blood loss or infection Mm. or, you know, them ripping a nice little chunk out. But as soon as I realized, right, it's an exploratory bite. It's trying to figure out what I am. Mm-hmm. I just played dead because I was like, if I don't move my leg, it A, hopefully won't take another, like, chomp and it really do some damage or B, do the death roll, kind of like you said. Yeah. Um, so I just played dead and I also had a, a scuba suit. And I don't know if you guys have felt, like, neoprene before. Really? It's a really weird texture. And sharks, like crocodiles, are very receptive in their mouth to texture. And so I think it kind of realized, oh, it's not moving and it feels like it it tastes weird. Mm-hmm. This is not food. And it just let me go. That's what I'm thinking happened. But it just let me go. And as soon as I was out, I didn't do a safety stop or anything. I filled my oh, like, no. BCD just vest up and rocketed straight up. I was like, give me the bends. I don't care. Oh, wow. Just get me out of here. That is wow. such calm cool yeah. collected thinking wow. i'm just so impressed by that yeah well it's response. funny well it's funny because people are like you know how did you stay so calm and i have no idea mm. none like you should see me scream during cockroaches and whatnot oh same girl <laughs> like i do not like cockroaches spiders and i like i don't trust them mm-hmm. but crocodiles are fine <laughs> yeah apparently <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's extremely impressive um oh, hey so cool. thank you for talking to us about your cool research and your terrifying crocodile experience <laughs> um if people want to know more about you and hear more and see more and experience more about you, but not uncover your deep, dark secrets that you are, <laughs> in fact, a human shark, where can they do those things? Again, no comment for that one. Yeah. But for social media, uh, you can find me on Twitter at MCMSharksXX, or you can find me on Instagram at Melissa Christina Marquez. Fantastic. And you also have a podcast as well, is that correct? I do. It's a Spanish-speaking podcast um, called Conciencia Azul, uh, where I interview scientists and conservationists all around the world who speak Spanish uh, in regards to their work. Um, and I've also got a program called the Finns United Initiative. If you want to learn about different species of sharks, maybe including me, uh, <laughs> on that website. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank My you pleasure. so much. <laughs> Well, wasn't that a delightful little intersection in the middle of the show to hear about a guest and their wonderful research? It was. I hope you found it interesting, Taryn. I know I sure did. Oh boy, did I. Whew, I'm pooped learning about new things. I want to know more about bees, and oh. especially honey. Well... 
Do I have some news for you, Ben? Great. We're going to learn all about honey. Tell me about that sweet, good, sticky stuff. So the reasons that bees make honey, besides mm-hmm. for putting in my tea specifically, okay. just my you, tea. Taryn Lovenstein's yes. tea. Stein. Stein. <laughs> <laughs> Is that they make honey as a food store for over the winter when there are less flowers around and they need to have something to eat to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. And so one key element of making this honey is helping the hive to get enough nectar. And they do this through a special bee communication. Have you heard of this before, Benjamin? Is it the waggle dance? It is the waggle dance uh, indeed. Ah, let's pretend I don't know what a waggle dance is because I do and it's delightful. And let's tell the listeners. So this is a cool dance that they do to let <laughs> other... <laughs> It's the hip new dance. Yeah, all the bees are doing it. The waggle dance. (laughs) And how it works is they will make a figure eight pattern. And where the eight kind of comes together is where they'll do the waggle. And the different elements of the dance communicate to the other bees where the goods are. What are they waggling? So the angle of the waggle tells you in which direction to head out from the hive. What are they waggling? (laughs) What are they waggling? Like what? Their whole body? Like what's being Yeah, their whole body. They're just waggling. They don't have a lot of like you know different articulated parts. They're just (laughs) kind of just kind of shaking around. Yeah, shaking their whole. It's a really it's a really involved dance. They get every aspect of themselves into it. Wow. So you've got the angle of the waggle that tells you where to go, the direction. Then the length of the waggle tells you how far it is away from the hive. And then, basically, the more vigorously the bee waggles, so the more excited the bee is, that'll tell you how good the food source is. Wait, and who decides to start doing this? You know, that's an excellent question. Um, they're not really sure, but as long as humans have been studying bees, they've been waggling. Wait, so just like one bee will be like, I have found some really good food over there, and tell all the other bees about it? <laughs> I hope that's how it sounds. <laughs> in bees speak, the, In yeah. bees speak, yeah. Yeah, and then they go for it. Yeah, that's so that's incredible. how they tell their buds, like, don't waste your time over there. I know where the good stuff is. Let's go. Do they do it like always or only when they're like starting to plan to make honey? They're probably doing it all the time because they're always on the lookout for that nectar because they only have a short window of time in which to collect enough nectar mm. to make honey for all winter long. Wait, so they're like constantly making honey? Is all the that time. about the shape of it? And do they ever eat the nectar like while it's now? Yeah, they'll use nectar to help them get around while they're harvesting. Collecting. collecting. So you got to spend nectar to make nectar. Exactly. Is that about the shape of yeah. things? Okay. Got to spend nectar to make honey. Right. And that's the best stuff. So. Once they've established where the good nectar is, then they're going to go to a flower and suck it up with their long bee tongues. Wait, hold on. (laughs) We haven't introduced the concept of long bee tongues yet. They have long tongues. Okay. (laughs) That are specially adapted for getting deep into those flowers and getting that sweet honey out. Nice. Sweet nectar, excuse me. It's not honey yet. It's very nice. And what they do is they put that nectar <laughs> into their nice. special nectar stomach, which They've is separate so from their pouches. regular stomach. <laughs> yeah. So uh. that nectar stomach only holds about 40 milligrams of nectar, mm-hmm. but it can take thousands of flowers for them to fill it up. Okay. And when it's full, Jesus. it weighs almost as much as the bee itself. <laughs> They drink their weight in nectar. Exactly. Jesus Christ. Okay. So then they take that nectar once they're full and go back to the hive. And on the way home, there's already some stuff happening inside that nectar stomach. They've got digestive enzymes that are working on it to try and turn it into honey. And then when they're back at the hive, they're going to do a gross thing, which is that they vomit the nectar into the mouth of another worker bee 
who will then put it into their nectar stomach and then vomit that, that into another like bee's mouth. Nothing. Why does it need to happen that way? Listen, I don't think they were going to do this if it didn't have anything. <laughs> but wait, but hang on. It's just going from stomach to stomach? It is. Why does it need to do that? Why can't it stay in the one stomach? Well, the, the reason that they're doing this is that this is taking the nectar in its purest form, which has a lot of long, complex sugars. And every time it moves from B to B, there's more digestive enzymes working on breaking down those complex sugars into simpler sugars that are going to be in the honey. So that's the reason they do that gross vomit chain. But it still doesn't... I don't understand why it needs to go from B to B to do that. Like, surely they've all got the same enzymes up in there. Or do some of them have different ones? I think it speeds the process. Like, maybe one B could do it, but they'd have to sit there digesting it for a real long time <laughs> and bees are busy people man they don't yeah. have time for that so be- people please be- excuse me the people <laughs> the people they, they they don't have time, they don't have time. they're okay. on a clock it's okay. almost all right. winter all right so they they do this repeated regurgitation over and over and then once they're happy with it they put it into a cell of the honeycomb but at this point it's still a little bit too watery so what they'll do is flutter their wings really quickly to help evaporate more of the water and when they're like happy, all together yeah, they're just like... Like they all get around and just like... Time to go. They yeah. can actually regulate the temperature inside their hive really well. Um, mm, and I'm pretty to... sure that violates the concepts of thermodynamics, Darren. I don't know. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> but they're, they're very good at being able to make sure the temperature is exactly what they want it to be. And it's quite warm in there. What they so want that... it to be? To be. <laughs> <laughs> and they make it so that the nectar essentially evaporates some water out of it until it's the consistency of honey. That good sticky stuff. That good sticky stuff. And then they're like, this is it. We're happy. This is it. And then they This is the stuff. This is the stuff. And then they cap off the cell with some wax. And then How do they make the wax? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have time to research that, Ben. (laughs) They go down the farmer's market and they get the beeswax. Exactly. That's where they get the beeswax. Okay. And bees and I have that in common then. You guys are very similar. Oh, good. You're both big bees. Big bees. Okay, go on. So they seal it off with wax, and that honey is going to keep really well. You'll know this if you've ever had that one jar of honey in the back of your cupboard for like a couple years. It tends to last really well if it's properly stored. So honey, it's the best. Okay, I'm on board. It's also really good if you've got hay fever. Eat local honey. I'm not sure if the science is in on that, but at least anecdotal evidence seems to suggest. That's a very interesting question. I did look it up because Uh we've discussed this previously. Whilst I've been here in Canberra dying of hay fever? (laughs) Indeed. And as it turns out, there is some evidence that to suggest that that could be the case, but ultimately there haven't been enough robust studies to indicate that it could make a difference. But certainly can't At least hurt. some people think, yeah, and there's some evidence, there's I guess. There's plenty of anecdotal evidence, yeah. but at the robust scientific level, there's not any consensus that it would help with something like allergies. Right on. But if you're experiencing allergies, worst case, you get to taste a bit of honey. So go well, out and get some local honey there you and go. enjoy it. Enjoy your local honey. the worst thing that'll happen is that you'll enjoy the honey. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and the best thing is it might maybe potentially somehow help with the allergies. There you go. So yeah, humans have been interested in honey for its deliciousness and for other reasons for a really long time. So the oldest known interaction of humans and bees comes from 8,000 years ago, where 
there are cave paintings in Spain that show humans <laughs> foraging for honey. Amazing. 8,000 years ago. Hey, am I correct in thinking that there were like native bees to Australia that don't sting? And we've only introduced like stinging bees recently? I'm not sure about Australia, but there are certainly species of bees that don't sting as well as those that do. Again, for the purposes of simplification of this episode, honey we're only bees. talking about honeybees. Yeah, right on. But totally, there's stingless bees, there's really big, scary stinging bees, there's all kinds of bees. Okay, go on, human bees, I'm with you. So, 8,000 years ago, Spain, bees. Then, about 5,000 years ago, the... Oldest known honey remains were found in the country of Georgia. So archaeologists found, like, honey remains on the inside of a clay pot that mm. was in an ancient tomb. And so it's thought that the honey was given to a person to help them on their journey to the afterlife. Did the pot say honey, but it was, like, H-U-N-N-Y, and, like, very clearly Winnie the Pooh had been there? I really wish it were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say no, but okay. I'm going to let you have that mental Let image. me believe it. So there's evidence of honey in many ancient civilizations. You've I love got... the idea of evidence of honey. <laughs> like you need to convince someone that honey exists. Well, it's more the evidence that humans were interacting with them uh -huh. and the difference between beekeeping versus just foraging like we saw in Spain. So we've got evidence in ancient India, Egypt, the Middle East, Mesoamerica, China, and Greece. And actually in Greece, so many people were beekeeping in Athens that in 594 BC, they had to pass a law that there had to be three 300 feet between each beehive because apparently they were all amateur beekeepers. Jesus. In yeah. Wow. So people use this honey for cooking like we do. Mm -hmm. They used it to help people journey to the afterlife. They used it to mummify people. And they also used it to help patch up wounds. Yes. Now this last one is actually still in use today because scientists have found that honey has certain antimicrobial properties to help it protect <sighs> wounds from infection. That's crazy because you'd think like you put a big sticky sugary mess in something, it's just going to get infected because like bugs are going to get in. Exactly. But... It's thought that these antimicrobial properties come from the acidity and the high sugar content of the honey, mm. which can prevent the microbes from growing. But before you go slathering honey all over yourself the next time you get a cut... What do you mean before? Because that's already <laughs> what I do. And it's not just when I get a cut, Taryn. Let me tell you. <laughs> just all the time. Yeah, I'm just I always... Mean, for recreational purposes... Go for it. <laughs> but the benefits of the antimicrobial properties are going to vary depending on where that honey comes from and how pure it is. So there is something called medical grade honey, but that's not going to be what you're getting from your local supermarket. Yeah, I heard you could get that at uh, the dispensaries that are going to open up in uh, Canberra bees. <laughs> I wouldn't use that as your only line of defense, but if you have nothing else around, it certainly couldn't hurt. One of many uses for honey. Yeah, so beekeeping is the best. You get to have some honey, you get to have, like, tens of thousands of new friends, and... But you know all of them by name. You're like, this one's Susan B. Anthony, Ooh. this one's Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> Just <laughs> people with middle names that are B. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you get all these new friends, you can meet people through local chapters of beekeeping societies. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> Listen, there's a thriving beekeeping community... In pretty much most places. Amazing. But what I want to focus on now is telling some cautionary tales about what can happen if you're not careful with your beekeeping. Okay. So in urban areas, there are a lot of hobbyists that keep bees. Um, so for instance, in New York City, there um, in 2010, they allowed people to start beekeeping. And oh boy, did they. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... 
they probably are figuring this can help out the bees. But the issue is that is that they think it's more of like a... Do the bees need help? Are bees in trouble? Well, we will get there. Okay. But so people think, I'm going to help the bees. I'm going to beekeep. But then they think it's going to be a real low-key activity, uh-huh. like like watering a plant or something. Mm. But as it turns out, you need a bit more investment of time. So they have issues in some urban areas where if people aren't taking care of their bees properly, then the bees are just going to hightail it out of there. They're like, my landlord isn't keeping up his end of the bargain. I'm out. And now you've just got urban bees. And then you got urban bees, which can <laughs> be an issue. Yeah. Because swarms of bees yeah. are generally typically not... typically frowned upon. They're, they're typically frowned upon. And so there's a great story of out of New York City where in 2018, there was a giant swarm that descended on Times Square and they ended up centering on a hot dog stand, which is a very New York thing to do. And so what did they do? They called up the NYPD because they have some beekeepers. NYPD. Yes. They have some beekeepers on staff the that National came. Uni- New York Bee Department. Yeah. Yeah. So they came with their little Nets. vacuums. Yeah, it's like a low-powered vacuum. And they vacuumed up all 30,000 bees and then transported them somewhere else. I want that job, to be a bee vacuumist. Yeah, I think it's very cute. So that's one issue with beekeeping is if you're not keeping up with it. I'd also like to tell you the story of the killer bee. Ben, have you ever heard about killer bees? I mean, I've heard the concept of killer bees, but mostly in like the way that you would hear about them in like a, a cartoon or something. It's like a thing that like a supervillain would have to use to like ward you off. like Or yeah. like, you know, as like a natural disaster, there's this form of killer bees coming, but I don't actually know what they are. So as it turns out, the story of killer bees does come from a real life event. In the Americas, the bee that has become the most popular is the European honeybee. And it comes from Europe, so it's... That was the one on the cover of Beeble magazine. (laughs) So this European bee is best suited to a European climate. And it doesn't do as well in tropical climates. But people had brought these European bees all over the place, including places like Brazil, where it wasn't really thriving. So the story goes that in the 1950s, there was this biologist named Warwick E. Kerr from Brazil. And he was traveling to Africa to study some other bees. But while he was there, he captured some of the African subspecies of honeybees Mm. because they're better suited to a tropical climate. And he thought, I'm going to bring these back, crossbreed them with my European bees, and then they're going to make more honey. Uh But here's the deal. He had to be careful because this subspecies of bees from Africa, they're quite a bit more defensive than European bees. And when Uh I say defensive, that means they're really into protecting the hive. Mm -hmm. And if they feel threatened, they're quite a bit more aggressive. So for reference, they can chase a person a quarter of a mile. What's that in units that make sense? 400 meters. Okay, good. (laughs) And they have killed about a thousand humans, documented. And the victims receive 10 times more stings than from European Uh. bees. So you really don't want to cross these Big guys. rough boys who love to sting. Yeah, but they're great at living in tropical conditions. So Warwick was like, okay, all I got to do is make sure that these guys don't escape and we'll be fine. Mm, so what he does I bet is... that went great. Yeah. He, he brought them back and he put them into hives that had these meshes in front of them. And the meshes were big enough that they would let out the female workers, but not the queens or the drones. And if you remember... Female workers, they can't reproduce. So he's like, this plan is flawless. <laughs> the female bees go in and out. No one else does. They're safe. And uh-huh. actually, it works for a pretty long time right. with no issues. Oh, wow. To That's credit war, what, was going. it's a good system. Okay. But then what happens is a visiting beekeeper popped by Warwick's place. Okay. And he was like. Well, hang on. 
Yes. And he was like, hey, these screens, they're kind of stupid. Let's take them off. And so he took them off and he released the bees into the Amazing. Wild. So it was actually a great system. And the only reason it didn't well, work was because somebody fucked it up. My issue with this anecdote is, is that it's told by Warwick himself. I so see. it feels very much it's like, like oh, my friend was A guy was came in, town. in and took the meshes off my really cool meshes that were great and did yeah, a great job. I so see. It's a biased story. Grain of story. salt. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see. But... This happens. They get released out into the wild. And to Warwick's credit, they do really well. They're, they thrive in the tropical mm. environment. But again, quite a bit more defensive. Mm. And so people that are used to European bees, they're not as careful around these new bees. And they start getting stung and they start getting killed. And so this is where the term killer bees starts coming into play. See, so they're not like, they're just more aggressive bees. They're not like, they don't have any special killing properties no but they don't have toxins in them well i mean all bees have some toxins but they're not particularly more toxic than other bees so you have these bees flourishing down in brazil and then they start spreading so they were released in 1957 they got up to the amazon in the 70s central america in the 80s and up to the usa in the 90s and people were not into this no so this prospect of these bees arriving in the states really caused a media sensation in the 70s. And that's when you get certain horror films like Killer Bees and The Swarm, which essentially just provoked hysteria without providing any relevant information. Good. That's the best thing media can do. So that's how you got the term killer bees out in society. And and they do still today exist in places like the United States. But again, they're only defensive. They're not vindictive. So as long as you don't threaten them or their hive, you're going to be okay. Still, they are considered an invasive species in the Americas, so I think this serves as another example of humans perhaps underestimating the havoc they can cause with just a couple of bees. Wow. Yeah. So, the last thing I want to talk to you about, Ben, is something called colony collapse disorder. That sounds bad. It sounds real bad. Have you heard in the news that, like, the bees are dying? Yeah, I feel like for, like, a decade now, at least, people have been like, the bees are dying, and that's bad because bees help the planet? In some way? That's I mean, exactly We talked it. about this a bit before, right? Like, they need, we need bees to pollinate. Like, bees help plants grow. They're an important part of the ecosystem. Without the bees, we'd all be fucked. Is that about the shape of things? That is exactly it. Okay. So, the media around this was all about a specific phenomenon called colony collapse disorder, or CCD. And this is when all of the worker bees pretty much just disappear, and they leave behind a queen and a few nurses behind to take care of the babies. But that's it. They're just gone. Hmm. And there's been a massive increase in CCD in North America, Europe, and some areas of Asia in the honeybees starting around 2006. So yeah, a little over a decade ago. Hmm. And then by just two years later, it accounted for 60% of all hives lofts. So Whoa. that's hundreds of thousands of colonies. Yeah, it's and a big like, deal. If I'm not mistaken, colony collapse disorder is just kind of a bucket term, right? Like we don't know what... Well, yeah, that's the thing. So the reason that we care about colony collapse disorder is that, like you said, bees are super important. So the world economy really relies on them. <laughs> the, econo- the economy. Yeah. So on the order of around $200 billion yearly. Billion dollars. Billion dollars. <laughs> they pollinate crops and that's worth $200 billion to wow. us. So to put it another way, one out of every three meals that humans eat is made possible by honeybees. <laughs> That's wild, right? Okay, yeah, I'm going to quickly up. list some of the things that they help us with. Okay. Almonds, squash, watermelons, cashews, apples, avocados, cherries, plums, pears, eggplants, tomatoes, potatoes, and potatoes. 
and all of the best berries. <laughs> is there a difference? Totally. The, okay. You got the bloobs, the straws. No, I mean potatoes and potatoes. No, it was a joke. That was okay. Was I'm sorry, Taryn. I ruined your joke. <laughs> it's okay. But lots of berries. Lots, lots of berries. I mean, they're they're so vital for us. But like you said, we still don't really know what's causing it. So there's a couple of different theories put out there. Um, it could be that certain modern beekeeping practices might be stressing the bees out. So <laughs> they just need a bee vacation. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So currently, under the beekeeping system, you can actually rent bees as a farmer. So the bees get trucked these long distances, and then they get set up in a new farm, and then they pollinate for really intensely for a short period of time, and then they get trucked somewhere else, and that could be pretty stressful for them. Yeah, I bet. And then related to that is the idea of crop monoculture, which is essentially the bees are only ever pollinating one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And that might mean that they're not getting all of the nutritional needs that they have. It's like, you ever see one of those shows where somebody's like, I only eat string cheese. Yeah, and that is bad for them. It's bad for them. (laughs) You need more nutrients than what string cheese has. What are you telling me? Something I need to change about my diet, Tara? Listen, I'm on for the cheese diet. I'm all about honey honey and string cheese. That's all I eat. Maybe try to get some vegetables. We'll get there. Okay, all right. So it could be one of those things. It could be habitat loss. It could be disease. It could be a warming climate is favoring parasites such as varroa mites, which basically attach themselves onto bees and weaken them, which shortens their lifespan. And they also spread bee diseases. So it's sort of like how mosquitoes... Ooh, diseases. (laughs) So it's like how mosquitoes can carry malaria. It's the same deal for bees. Okay, I had heard that the climate change reasoning for colony collapse disorder was sort of coming out of vogue. I remember that was like all the rage when you started hearing about it. It was like, oh, it's happening because the climate's changing. And like, then I heard that maybe that wasn't the case. And I was like, oh... That's nice. One thing that the climate isn't going to destroy is the bees. I mean, it's certainly not helping them, though, Okay, sure. all right. So you've got all these factors. It's also been thought that it could be pesticides. So there's mm. these certain pesticides called neonicotinoids. We're going to have to dig in on pesticides one day. We will. I think we will, because they're a cool topic. Mm. So there's this one called neonicotinoid, which is related to nicotine, and they harm the nervous systems of insects. And actually, based on research about this... The EU in April of 2018 voted to restrict the use of three neonicotinoid compounds so that they can only be used in greenhouses and Mm. not outside. So there's a lot of different factors and really there is no consensus about what is causing CCD. Now, the good news, I have good news and bad news around this. The good news is the number of cases of CCD have declined since their peak. So now they only account for about 20% of hive losses in the first quarter of 2018, which is less than it was back when it started, which seems like good news. But the thing is, we don't really know what caused it. And so if there was another outbreak, we wouldn't, transient. Be, yeah, we wouldn't be prepared to deal with it. And then even without CCD, bees are still declining and in many areas of the world, and they're still facing many of the same threats. So they're not entirely out of the woods. Well, that all sounds very grim and sad about bees. Why don't we try and cheer ourselves and our listeners up? Well, exactly. So how could you yourself help some bees out? Mm. You don't have to be a beekeeper, as I discussed. (laughs) Because I've already bought my mesh hat. I'm already there. (laughs) I'm already a bee boy. I mean, if you want to, go for it. But there's easier ways you can do it, such as making a friendly environment for them. So choose plants that are friendly to bees, and you can check your local resources to find out what's going to work in your area. 
But if you are inclined to become a beekeeper, please don't be one of those aimless urban beekeepers. Mm-hmm. Please read some books, talk to your local beekeepers, and get informed so that we you don't can need have any shiftless, no. lazy, hippie beekeepers. We want you people that are think... committed to the bees. You millennials might think that keeping bees is just about honey to sweeten your raw <laughs> fermented kombucha drinks. Ooh. But really, it's so much more. (laughs) It is. We want healthy, happy bees that aren't going to fly away and cause mass hysteria in your town. And thanks so much for listening. That has been our show, the very first episode of The Uncertainty Principle. Wow. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate it. I can't believe we're here, Taryn. I can't either. (laughs) I can't believe we made it through the exciting, (laughs) dangerous world of bees. Uh, I am, as always, one of your hosts, Dr. Ben McAllister. And I'm Dr. Taryn Lovenstein. So uh, as we mentioned up top, we are a brand new show. So please, wherever you're listening, go leave us a rating or a review or some shit like that. And uh, make sure you tell a friend, share it around. Please do. Tell your mom. Moms love our podcast. That's true. Mine does. Yours Mine does. does. That's yeah. two right there. That's two. Two for two, for two you know. <laughs> uh, where can they follow us, Taryn? They can follow me on Twitter at... At Science Taren. You can get me at Dr. B.T. McAllister. And you can follow both of us at our newly created Twitter account, at PrincipalCast. Yeah, we agonized over that long and hard, so don't be tweeting at us that why didn't you call it this or that or the other thing. We looked. We looked at all of the different tweeters. (laughs) We looked at all the tweeters that were available, (laughs) and we came up with at PrincipalCast. Or, of course, you could follow the podcast network at Curio Network on whichever platform you choose. We're going to have new episodes monthly, so be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. Yeah, that's right. And if you've got a topic that you'd like us to cover, a thing you think that you need explained, go ahead and ship that to us. You can get us on the aforementioned various handles. Thank you so much to our special guest speaker again this week, Melissa Marquez. It was so wonderful to have her on the pod. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, what an absolute delight. She's fantastic. Check her out at MCM Sharks On Twitter. And until next time, stay uncertain. Maybe yeah. that maybe that'll change. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>